Let's take our Bible to the book of Luke. Luke chapter number two is where we're going to be. We're, um, we're continuing our series that we've been looking at, Changed Lives at Christ's Advent. And uh, we're going to look uh, tonight at this text of Scripture at two people that you don't really hear a whole lot about around this season. Uh, but it's here in the Scriptures, and I think we can glean some good things from them. And so the title of the message is Waiting for the Savior, because that's essentially what you see with these two people, is two Jewish people who were waiting on the arrival of Christ, and uh, they got to experience that arrival, uh, what seems to be in their old age, not long before they were about to depart this world. And so uh, there's a great lesson here, I think, uh, for us as we look at this text. Luke chapter number 2, verse 22 down through verse 38, I'll read it and then we'll begin. When the time came after their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at the very hour she began to give thanks to God and to speak of, of him, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we're looking at waiting for the Savior. That's kind of the theme you'll see through this text. You ever think about waiting on something that's uh, very important? Waiting is not something uh, I'm good at. I don't know about you. Maybe you're good at waiting. Uh, But uh, waiting is something we all have to deal with. We all wait in some fashion and Usually what we're waiting on, we're ready for that to come to pass, right? We don't particularly like waiting. Uh, But as we look at the scriptures, we find that God's people, what were they waiting for? They were waiting for the most important thing imaginable. That was the Savior. That was the Messiah, the Christ that had been promised to them in the Old Testament. And so the arrival of him is is, is the centerpiece of the Old Testament scriptures. And so God promised that he would come, and with his coming would be salvation. Now, there were most likely many who grew weary waiting on the Messiah's arrival. I mean, after all, there's been prophecies for hundreds of years, and then there was hundreds of years where uh, there was, I guess you could say, silence. There wasn't any new revelation, new prophet who had penned down Scripture. Uh, And so you can imagine not getting any news about uh, where we're at, what's going on, right? 
Uh, have you ever been sitting at your uh, your auto shop and been waiting on your waiting on your vehicle to get done, and uh, you're just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting, and the guy comes out, you're hoping he's got a word for you, but then he goes off to the next person, and so you're just kind of anxious. You're wet, you're ready to get on the way, right? You're wet, ready for it to be fulfilled. Well, we think about the Israelites for a moment. Many there are many who no doubt were uh, were were weary of waiting for the Messiah's arrival. But then there were some people who did not lose sight of God's promise in the Old Testament who were diligently waiting on God to fulfill that promise, knowing the Messiah would come when God's time was right. And so when Christ finally did come, the people who encountered Him no doubt were joyfully changed and impacted in their heart, in their mind, and in their life as they lived on in this world. Now, we've read about several people who encountered Him around the time of His birth, uh, particularly his parents, right? We've read about how this impacted Joseph and Mary and then Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, we looked Sunday at the Magi and, and the wise men who, who came to see him. But there's two specific people here uh, that encounter Christ not long after his birth that we don't hear much about. These people aren't in the nativity scene. They're not really uh, at the forefront of our thoughts when it comes to the Christmas season. This is the only reference to them in the Scriptures. The passage that you and I just read, it's the only time that they're ever mentioned. But these two people, like the rest, they were waiting for the Savior. They also were impacted by His arrival. The first person is a man named Simeon, and the second person is a woman named Anna. Now, these two aren't married people. They're just two separate people there in Jerusalem uh, who experience encountering the Savior with His arrival. So I want us to consider tonight uh, what we see with their encounter, meeting the Messiah, and how that might have impacted them as well, uh, and we can also glean some application for us. So let's look at the first person tonight in our notes. We're going to look at Simeon. Look at Simeon with me. Simeon faithfully waited for God's promise. That's what we find firstly. Simeon faithfully waited for God's promise. But I want to look at him for a minute. Let's notice, let's notice uh, the person of Simeon. The person of Simeon. As we look in our text, it picks up with some background. And in this background, we see Mary and Joseph following the instructions of the law in the Old Testament. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. And then we see, in verse, we see that in verse 21. And then following that, there was a period of 33 days. Uh, and then they would have to go to the temple for this time of purification and uh, give an offering. Uh, you'll notice that they came specifically to present him to the Lord there in the temple. So this was according to Leviticus uh, 12, verse 3 through 4. That's where you're going to find that command given. Uh, we also find Luke then quotes in verse 23, Exodus 13, 2, about uh, presenting male children unto himself. So Mary and Joseph, they're going through what they uh, were faithful to go through, is obeying the law of God, obeying the word of God. And it's while they're obeying the law of God that we meet this man named Simeon in verse 25. So we think, who was this guy? You know, sometimes Scripture mentions people that we don't just get a whole lot of information about, but who was this man? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us anything about him other than what we read right here in this text. Now, what we read right here is phenomenal. It's great testimony. Now, some have speculated that maybe this Simeon was the son of the uh, famous Rabbi Hillel, uh, many of you probably heard about him if you've read a little bit of, of that day and time surrounding the days of Jesus, uh, and that he was the father of Gamaliel, Paul's tutor. 
Now, there's not a lot of historical evidence for that, but that's just some speculation as to where he might fit in the picture. But whether that's true or not, Scripture gives us the most important uh, knowledge we need to know about him. And what Scripture revealed to us? It reveals to us his godly character that he had. And this is important in contrast to the condition of most Israelites in that day and time. Most Israelites, especially even the religious leaders, they did not have the godly character that we read about here with Simeon. And so let's look at his godly character for a moment. Notice that Luke describes him in verse 25 in this way. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So we look at what God is saying about this man named Simeon. We notice that he was righteous. Now, the Bible describes many people as righteous or just. Uh, some will translate it as just. It's the same meaning. Uh, we, we see this with several people throughout the Scriptures. Uh, Joseph, the, the stepdad of Jesus, the foster father of Jesus, he's described as being a just or righteous man. Joseph of Arimathea at the end of the life of Jesus. I think I found that interesting as I was reading through these again that there's two Josephs that bookend the life of Jesus at his birth as his stepfather, uh, then at his burial. Uh, and, and so it's it's kind of interesting how that how that is pictured. Cornelius is said to have been a righteous man. John the Baptist, and ultimately we know Jesus was the one who was righteous. But the word righteous means pertaining to being in accordance with the high standards, upright, just, and fair. So, so Simeon was an upright man, meaning that he's one who did that which was right. He's one who did that which was right in the sight of God. Now, that does not mean that he was perfectly righteous in the sense that Jesus was sinless, right? Uh, righteous is sometimes used to describe someone who is faithful, someone who is walking with the Lord, someone who is living out the Word of God in their life. But we know there's only one who's been sinless, and that's Jesus. He is the righteous one, and praise God that by His redemptive work, He makes us righteous. He gives us His righteousness through faith. And so, uh, that, that's the wonderful truth of the gospel. So, but we see with, 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 um, with Simeon, he was faithful to live in a way that was right according to the law of God. We notice that he was also devout. That word devout simply means that he was God-fearing. That's, that's what the Greek definition says. He's god fearing. And so typically these two things go hand in hand, right? Those who are living righteously are God-fearing people. If one does not fear God in their life and in their heart, they're not going to live in that kind of a way. So because he was a man who feared the Lord in his heart, he did what was right according to the Word of God. And may I say that that is truly to be the description of all God's people, not just Simeon, not just certain ones in Scripture. God calls on every single one of us to be God-fearing people. When we look at the world around us, what is it that's missing in our culture? There is a lack of fear of God, a lack of fear and reverence for Him. And so God's people should be the people who fear Him and obey Him with their life, just like Simeon is doing here. Uh, Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. The end of the matter is this. All that has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Uh, if you want to know what you're supposed to do with your life, it's that right there. Fear God and keep His commandments. Walk with Him. Obey Him. So, Simeon's character description here, it is in stark contrast to the godless character of the Jews in that day. 
Now, they didn't think that they were godless. They were very religious outwardly. But as you read through the days of Jesus and what he encountered with the religious, what do we find? Jesus and John the Baptist said, you all are a brood of vipers. Who has warned you to, to flee from the wrath to come? So, so he saw their hearts. He knew that they were outwardly like whited sepulchers, but inwardly they were like dead men's bones. And so Simeon is in contrast to the Jewish people of that day. He is a genuine, faithful, religious Jew who is following his God. Notice that also with him. Not only was he righteous and devout, but we find that he is a man of faith and a man of patience. And notice how we see that in verse, verse 25. What else is he doing here? The Bible says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what is this consolation of Israel? The, the word consolation refers to comfort. It refers to lifting up one's spirits uh, and, and that sort of thing. And so you and I, we often will give words of comfort to each other, right? If someone's going through a trial or, or hurting, we, what's, the, what's the aim of that? It's to lift them up. It's to encourage them. It's to comfort them, right? And so what does the consolation of Israel refer to? It's a reference to the promised time when the Messiah would arrive in history. That time in history when he would actually come into Israel. And so that's what uh, would be the greatest comfort, the consolation to the Jewish people, was that their Messiah would have arrived. Now, this would be a time of comfort primarily because we see the Messiah was supposed to bring salvation. Um, and so that's what they're looking for. But here's the thing. The Jews of that day, the majority of them, they weren't looking for a Messiah that would bring spiritual salvation, were they? What were they looking for? They were looking for political salvation. They were looking for national salvation. And may I say, any kind of salvation without spiritual salvation is no salvation at all. Uh, I, I understand that many want our nation to be better and be delivered and be saved, but without regeneration, our, our nation will remain as it is. And so what we ought to pray for is regeneration among the lost and uh, revival among God's people because that is the true need. But when we look at Israel in that day of time, they were looking for a national Savior, not a spiritual Savior. But Simeon was looking for the Messiah of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning salvation. Israel's redemption concerning the kingdom of God and even the Gentile inclusion, as we'll see later. Simeon has in his mind the true salvation that is needed. So this would be the consolation, the comfort of Israel. His expectation, again, it's in contrast to the expectation of the Jews of his day, especially those religious leaders. Not only did they not have the character of Simeon being righteous and devout, they also did not look for the Messiah in it for spiritual salvation as they ought to have. So Simeon, understand, he's an example that even among uh, that godless generation, that godless generation of Israel, God still had him a people, a remnant. And that's, that is something we take comfort in, is that there's never a time when God does not have a people that he's reserved for himself. Uh, though sometimes they're few, sometimes they're many, we find that in that particular day and time, they were indeed few. Uh, Paul wrote this in his day concerning Israel, Romans eleven five. So too at this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Even though the nation of Israel as a whole rejected their Messiah, there was still Jews being saved, though it was not the whole of the nation. 
Uh, and so God, in His election and His grace, He has reserved for Himself a people, and Simeon is an example of that. But notice also with Simeon, coming through his character and, and the person of who he is, notice that the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. That's a clear indication of God's special anointing upon Simeon to instruct him and use him for his purposes. He has, with the Spirit, the gift of prophecy, just as God had used prophets of old to give revelation of truth. God had spoken uh, to Simeon and given him revelation, as we'll look in this text, about something he's going to experience with Christ very soon. Peter said this in 2 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever uh, produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see? And so Luke, what he's showing us, he wants his readers to understand that what we're reading about Simeon here is absolutely reliable and accurate. It comes from God himself. It is under his inspiration. So looking at that description, we see what kind of a godly person he was. But notice with me letter B, not only do we see the person of Simeon, who he is, we see the privilege of Simeon. We see the privilege of Simeon. Simeon had a very unique promise given to him. What's that promise? He has promised that he is going to see the Lord's Christ before he dies. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now imagine that promise for a moment. We've all probably got things we'd like to do or see uh, before we pass from this life, right? It's often called a, a bucket list. Anybody got a bucket list? Probably something you got in your mind. You maybe don't have it, write it down, but you've got things in your head you'd like to do. You'd like to go see certain things. I mean, uh, I have some of mine. One was I wanted to visit Israel, and God blessed with that opportunity. But I've got others. I'd like to go uh, travel the journeys of Paul, his missionary journeys. I'd love to go see some of those spots. Like to, I'd like to visit uh, some other places in the world, like, uh, uh, like Hawaii, Bob, Bob and uh, Sandy. Uh, you, you've crossed off a bucket list item for me. Um, I was there when I was three, but when you're three, you don't remember nothing. So I, I want to go there where I can remember it. Uh, I'd like to go to Alaska. Never been there. Just looks, looks pretty. You, we've all got bucket list items we'd like to see uh, and do before we die. And, and you can imagine that, that Simeon here, he, he gets promised the greatest thing imaginable that could happen to him in his life. God himself tells Simeon, before you die, you're going to see the Christ. You're going to see the Messiah, the one that's been written about in the Old Testament, the one that has been promised for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You are going to get to see him before you die. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment as a Jew in that day, getting that word from God. Now, others in the Scriptures have been promised by God certain things or events uh, that would happen in their life where they died. Paul was promised that he would testify of Christ in Rome before he died. Acts 23, 11, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, as for you, for, for, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That was a guarantee to Paul that he's not going to die till he gets to Rome. All right, At least to that point. You're going to get there, Paul. All right, Jesus told his apostles, certain of them, not all of them, they wouldn't die until they saw his coming kingdom. Luke 9, 27, I tell you truly, there's some of you standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, there's some debate about the specifics of that passage, but I won't get into that. 
But what you find with this is there's a promise. They're going to experience something before they die. So promises like these, they're rare and they're extraordinary. The promise made unto Simeon is truly remarkable for his day. Now, notice how the Lord brings this promise to fulfillment in verse 27 and verse 28. Notice this with me. The Bible says, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now, here's what I want to point out, a couple things about this, this instance. Is it a coincidence that Simeon comes into the temple at the same time that Jesus is in the temple with Mary and Joseph while they're just faithfully obeying what they're supposed to by the law of God? <laughs> Friend, this, this is, I, I love seeing the providence of God. This is the Lord guiding and governing Simeon's day. That was a normal day for him. He didn't know that they were there ahead of time, but God by His Spirit directs him into the temple at that specific point in time when Mary and Joseph are there with Jesus performing the custom of the law, and Simeon comes into the very presence of the one he was promised to see. Now you see Simeon's response in verse 28 through 30. He says, he he took him up in his arms and blessed God. It's almost as if Simeon walks in and the Spirit points to Jesus. That's him. There he is. We don't, we don't read that any kind of announcement made, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah. Uh, I mean, th- this, is a, this is a providential connection where Simeon recognizes that this baby is the Christ. And so he goes to the Christ, he goes to Jesus, and he took him up in his arms. Imagine the scene here in the temple. Took him up in his arms. Now, how precious is it to take any newborn baby into your arms? I mean, that's one of the most wonderful things we experience. I'll never forget uh, each time I held each of my children the very first time right after they'd been born, how precious and tender they are and, and, and what a great moment that is. But, but we think about Simeon here. He's getting to hold the newborn Messiah, the one who came to bring redemption the one who has promised long ago. How much more precious was this moment for Simeon holding the Messiah? He is holding in his arms the consolation of Israel that he had been waiting for for a long time. Now Simeon goes on to say in verse 29 through 30, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And I love what he says here, for my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. What a wonderful thing that is. At that very moment, Simeon is experiencing the fulfillment of two promises at one time. One promise being, you're going to get to see the Christ. That was a specific promise to him. The other promise being, the Christ that was to come. Two promises at one time. So he's looking with his own eyes into the face of him who is salvation. Now, you think about ourselves. There's, there's coming a day that we also are waiting and longing for that day when we get to see Jesus face to face. Now, we've experienced His salvation and the indwelling of His presence by the Spirit of God. But what a joy it will be when you and I also get to experience what we have waited and longed for. Anybody else long to see Jesus face to face? 
I mean, I can't wait to see Jesus face to face. The presence of Him now is glorious and wonderful, but that day that we enter into His presence and see Him, as Paul said in Philippians, He desires to depart me with Christ. Why? It's far better. Far better than here. But He knew that until God was done with Him, He had to stay. So we think about how precious this moment is for Simeon, seeing God's hand orchestrating and bringing all of this to fruition. But notice with me letter C. We're not done with Simeon. The bulk of the message is on Simeon. Notice the prophecy from Simeon. There's a prophecy that Simeon gives here concerning Christ in verse 31 through verse 32 and onward. Notice this. Verse 31, he says, "...that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of... Uh, for, the, for glory to your people Israel. Now, Simeon is essentially restating what the prophets wrote about long ago, about the Messiah. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 52.10, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That's where you see referencing the Gentiles. He says He will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49.6 also says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so Simeon is tying all this together that this Messiah was not just about Israel or Jews. It was about the entirety of the world, the nations. And I don't know about you, I'm really thankful for that because I'm not Jewish by nature. Anybody else in here Jewish? You see, this is, this is the glory of the gospel is that it permeates the entirety of the world, reaching every tribe, language, and tongue. And so this is what was promised with him. Now, with all these words, you can imagine Joseph and Mary standing there hearing all of this. Imagine their experience in the last, in the last short period of their life. I mean, how drastically they've been changed. We've already gone over that. But even every step of the way, when, when the Magi came to see them, them experiencing that, when, when the shepherds come and see them, we're going to look at that on Sunday morning, when they come to the temple here, every little bit and piece that they're taking in about this child that God has given them. Now, you look at verse 33, and here's what we find. His father and mother marveled at what was said about him. He marveled at this, and I don't... I don't know what else you could do but just marvel at it. Be astonished and just take it in and be like, wow, uh, amazing how the Lord is working through this. But here we find Simeon continues his prophecy about the child, about Jesus, in verse 34, and he says specifically to Mary, he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And I'm going to... Skip over the portion that goes directly to Mary, but because this is about uh, the nation of Israel, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's continued. You'll see that it's in uh, parentheticals there. In saying that Jesus would bring a great fall to Israel, what in the world could that mean? Isn't Jesus supposed to bring a great salvation to Israel? How did Jesus bring this great fall? Here's how it happens. Because as the Messiah, he would not be received by many in Israel, only by few. That's how. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John 1, 11. In fact, it was only few we find that received him. Those who did not receive him rejected him, bringing about a great fall on the entirety of the nation. 
Now, Peter gives insight into this truth in 1 Peter 2. Go with me in your Bible to this passage. This will connect with what he's saying for you. 1 Peter 2 and verse 7 through 8, and notice what he says here. Let me, uh, let me start actually in verse 6. 1 Peter 2, verse 6 through 8. Notice that he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Notice verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And Peter contrasts that with those who do believe in verse 8, saying, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, wrapped up within this, you see God's sovereignty in the Messiah arriving and how all things would play out. We notice that Jesus, as the cornerstone, he's rejected by them. The Jewish leaders and the Jews as a whole, they placed their stamp of disapproval upon Jesus. They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He's not our king. He's not the one that God had promised. Why? They were looking for a political Messiah, weren't they? They weren't looking for one who was bringing spiritual redemption. They wanted one who uh, fit their mold of who the Messiah was. And in their mold, he can't be God, obviously. They wanted him dead because he claimed to be deity as well. And so there's all sorts of things that tie into this. But he has become the head of the corner, all right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus, as this stone... He is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. They stumbled at him as they were destined to. This brought a great fall unto Israel. But for those who believe, they would rise. They would be with him. So the ultimate rejection of Christ would bring this fall on Israel as God's covenant people under the old covenant. And that fall is manifested expressly in the judgment that God brought upon them in 70 A.D., if you study historically, what happened in that time? God completely eradicated Jerusalem and the temple. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, the disciples are praising, oh, look at the temple, how beautiful, and Jesus just pops their bubble. There's not one stone that's going to be left on another. Well, 40 years or so later, one generation, that came to pass. And that was all a result of the judgment because of their rejection of Messiah. Now, Simeon gives another word to Mary specifically, and this one, this one hits home too. In, in, inserted here in the midst of this sentence, as Luke records it in verse 35, notice what he says to Mary. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Mary would experience the piercing pain of seeing her son rejected, and crucified. Now you, you just ponder for a moment that experience for Mary. How much that must have cut deeply within her heart. Even though uh, it was going to happen, 
That doesn't change the pain of watching your firstborn son that came by miraculous conception being put to death in the most horrific and agonizing form imaginable in that day and time. You see, Mary, Mary was there viewing the cross when Jesus was hanging there as he's dying, as he's bleeding. The Bible says in John 19.25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. They must have loved the name Mary back in that day. Can uh, anybody else get confused with how many Marys there are? <laughs> There's a lot. But here we see these Marys. They're, they're there watching Jesus. And among those Marys is Mary, the mother of Jesus. The sword that pierced through her soul. You imagine that, what that feeling was, how gruesome it was for her. So Simeon's prophecy here comes from the Spirit, and that is going to come to fruition. But as we look at that passage, that's the last we see of Simeon. Last we see of him. We don't know how long he lived after that encounter. But one thing we do know is this, that his life was greatly changed that day. He experienced something that not many had experienced, and that was seeing and holding the Christ who was to come in his own life. So he could depart in peace. Number two, we see this second person. This person's name is Anna. Anna. We don't hear a lot about her. There's less given here for her than there is about Simeon. Anna was, uh, notice that number two, Anna faithfully worshipped God, worshipped in God's providence. She faithfully worshipped in God's providence. And we see her commitment to the Lord through all of this. Her, she was committed to Him. The next person we find is Anna in verse 36. Notice that she's, the Bible tells us about her that, that she was a prophetess. Now, what was a prophetess? Well, it was a female form of a prophet, one who was especially gifted by the Holy Spirit with revelation from Him. Uh, and so these were women who spoke God's Word. There were other women given this title of prophetess uh, throughout the Scripture. Uh, for example, you'll see Miriam was one of them, Deborah in Judges, Huldah in Second Kings, Isaiah's wife was titled that, and then we find the daughters of Philip in Acts 21. So these prophetesses served the Lord as a prophet did, being one through whom God brought revelation and gave insight to. They had a special and limited office, just as the prophets did in ancient times. So I would conclude that there is no prophets or prophetesses today. Now, many try to use prophetesses as a justification for women preachers of our day. That is not the case. That is not something that can be used for that. That is not God's order in the church in the time in which we live. So understand that... That, that today God has called men to serve as preachers and pastors and missionaries, but that does not mean that women cannot be used by God in a very influential way. Men and women have their own ordained roles in which God uses them for His purposes, and we ought to rejoice in that. God has set a specific order in the church for men and women to serve Him. But as we look specifically at Anna in her day and time and what God says about her, she was a prophetess. We don't know how long she had been a prophetess, but that's what we see. It could have been a long time, could have been a short time, but Scripture tells us this little bit about her. Verse, look at this verse 36 and 37. What, is it, what do we learn about her? She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. Or as some translations may render it, she was a widow of about 84 years old. So she, she was an elderly lady, an elderly Jewish lady in her, in, in, in Jerusalem. 
But here's what I find fascinating about her. Despite her age and what she's experienced in her life, what do we find Anna doing? She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. As you read that description, what comes to your mind? What comes to my mind is a faithful woman who is committed to the Lord all the years of her life. Even though she has experienced the loss of her husband and has spent the vast majority of her life as a widow, she is faithfully and consistently worshiping and serving her God. She is one of those rare Jews in her day who genuinely loves the Lord and is faithful to Him. She engages in worship through fasting and prayer. Now, fasting and prayer are both forms of worship to the Lord as they direct our hearts unto Him in a genuine fashion. But notice her commitment to practicing this. She does this night and day. Night and day. Night and day. Her life is the Lord. That's what you see with her. Her life is the Lord. And, And friend... This, this, this reminds me of what Paul says about his own life. First Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And you, you look at this, and this is, this is an example for all godly women. Women, your faithfulness bears a great glory unto God and a great testimony to those around you. Don't take that lightly. Don't take that lightly. All of us are called to be faithful. And so this this is the conviction of Anna. Though she hadn't even met the Christ yet, she is faithful to him. Faithful to him, worshiping him. And little does she know that that day, going into the temple would change her life as she would meet the very one that she's been worshiping. She would meet him face to face. Notice letter B, she communicated about the Lord. We see this in verse 38. So as Mary and Joseph are there in the temple and they've experienced this meeting with Simon, hearing this prophecy, then shows up Anna. Then Anna shows up in verse 38. Coming into the temple, and I like how Luke says this, the Spirit says this, at that very hour. Coincidence or providence? Providence. God's unseen hand is glorious. The Lord recognizes her genuine life of faithfulness, unlike the other religious groups of their day. And the Lord blesses her life of faithfulness by bringing her to meet the one she's been faithful unto. And we read here about her. She began to give thanks to God. What's she thanking God for? She's thanking God for the Messiah that she gets to behold with her very eyes. She's thanking the Lord for for, for this, this privilege of all privileges, to see the Christ. And what does she do after she meets the Messiah that she waited for? Notice, she began to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I tend to think that she knew who the the sheep were versus the goats. Because not all were genuinely waiting for the Messiah. Some were for their own selfish purposes. But she knew. And so she began to publish this news to those among her. Imagine how wonderful this news must have been to hear to those who had longed for the Messiah and been weary of waiting. Isaiah 40, 31 tells us, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How true that is for those who heard this news in that day and time. But I look at Anna and think, how many more need to hear the same truth that Anna began to spread in her day? You know, we sing a wonderful song this time of year, Go Tell It on a Mountain. 
Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain what? That Jesus Christ is born? Friend, every Christian, every Christian is to be a beacon of the truth of what Christmas is all about. God has come incarnate to save sinners. That's what it's about. And so this, that's the consistent theme of those who encountered Christ. Anna, her life was changed, and she spoke about it. So notice with number three, and just briefly as we close, we see Christ's impact on Simeon and Anna. Christ's impact on Simeon and Anna. Just twofold thing. First one is this. They both experienced a fulfilled promise. They both experienced a fulfilled promise. They were both longing and looking for the coming of the promised Savior. Not all Jews were looking for him as they were, but they were looking. The condition of the people of that day was very cold, and they were blind in their religion. And this this narrative, the design of this narrative, really shows us how that God blesses his people and how that those who were faithful among the vast number of those who were unfaithful were blessed in this day, in this, in this instance. Despite the darkness of that day, the Lord had a people among them who genuinely looked for the Messiah and were privileged to meet him. They experienced a promise that God had fulfilled. Have you ever experienced a promise God fulfilled even in your own life? You probably all have in certain ways. We can take it to the bank that God's word never fails. God said in Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You and I make promises all the time, but they're fallible. But all that God promises is infallible, and they got to experience a fulfilled promise. Letter B, they both experienced a final peace in their life. A final peace. Both Simeon and Anna seem to be near the end of their life. Both of them are looking for the Messiah. One's been told you're going to see him. Anna didn't get that, but Simeon did. But they both get to see what so many in their past had not been privileged to see. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. Luke 10, 23 through 24, briefly. Turning to his disciples, he said privately to them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is an immeasurable privilege for them. And with this privilege, can you imagine the peace of being able to see what you long to see all your life? Before you're getting ready to leave this earth, you got to see it. You got to see it. Verse 29, Simeon said himself, I'm ready to depart in peace. For you fulfilled what you promised. This peace no doubt changed their life as they would soon on, go on to their own heavenly home. So Simeon and Anna, I find them as an interesting, interesting two people to look at in the Christmas narrative, in this time where Jesus has arrived. They're not heard of much. They're not in your nativity scene. But they were two real people who were changed by the coming of Christ. And we can learn a lot of good things from them and how God worked in their own life.